0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, Kirsty Melville with you for the History Listen. And today, a swashbuckling tale about a handsome, Russian flying ace, a last minute escape from Java in World War II as the Japanese swept in, a crash landing on a remote West Australian beach, and the disappearance of a package full of diamonds. It's March 1942. Darwin has recently been bombed by the Japanese and they're about to capture Java. On the airstrip at Bandung, a DC-3 named the Pelican is ready for takeoff on an evacuation flight to Broome. The pilot is Russian World War I flying ace Ivan Smirnov. Aviation writer Sylvia Ridley, broom historian Michael Lake and author John Thompson Gray take up the story.
2: On the 1st of March in 1942, West Java, the islands had all been taken, the Japanese had invaded and were making their way inland. Batavia had fallen and Bandung became the final holdout
0: Things were getting really desperate in the Dutch East Indies campaign. The orders on the 3rd of March came for all available planes and ships to evacuate to Australia, taking as many military personnel as possible.
2: The Pelican was a KLM plane.
0: It was a DC-3 passenger aircraft.
3: It was under charter to the Netherlands East Indies Army Air Corps.
2: To get people out of Bandung, before it fell, and to Broom, which was their closest safe place that they could get to.
3: To get more passengers on, they took all the seats out of the DC-3 and got the passengers to sit on the floor. They could load more, and to steady them, they put a rope down the centre for them to hold on.
0: There were four crew members, and they had eight passengers.
3: The captain was Ivan Smirnoff, he's nicknamed Turk, his co-pilot was Neef Hoffman. Joe Muller was the radio operator, and Duplier was a young man who was an apprentice mechanic, and he was part of the crew. Uh, the passengers were five MLK and IL, that's military pilots, uh, Sergeant Dick Briekman, Lieutenant Peter Kramerus, Sergeant Heinrich Gerritz, Lieutenant Dan Hendricks. The civilians were Hendrik Van Romont, who was a KLM technician.
2: And there was a woman, she was the wife of a pilot who'd been stationed there, Maria Van Tuin, and she was traveling with her 12-month-old son, Johannes.
0: They finally got the clearance to go, so they're basically you know, doing all their pre-flight and everything else. And the manager of the airport runs across the tarmac and hands them a sealed package with no paperwork.
3: Mr. Weiss, the uh, KLM manager there, brought the package out to the plane. He got in and all these people are on the floor and he had to crawl over them in the dark because there was a complete blackout for the whole area because of the Japanese coming. And there was just a faint pilot light on up at the front. So he crawled over them and he said, this is a very valuable package, Turk, look after it. Make sure you get it to the Commonwealth Bank of Australia in Sydney. And Turk said, oh, yeah, yeah, just give it to Hoffman. He does those things. And Weef says, you know, take more interest, Turk, you silly bastard. So what happened was Hoffman put it in the safe and he just left it there in the lid self-latched.
0: The story has it, it's about the size of a cigar box and it was sealed with string and the seals of the Java Gin, or the Bank of Java Bank, and NVD Concurrent, which was a leading jeweller and trader in gold and precious stones.
2: There were thousands of diamonds in that box.
3: I calculated it. It was 35,000 diamonds weighing 8,125 carats. It had a wholesale value of 320,000 Australian pounds at the time. And today that is about 30 million Australian dollars.
0: And a lot of the diamonds that were in this package had been brought by the members of the company based in Amsterdam just prior to the fall of the Netherlands.
3: They were Jewish, so what they did was they moved their business from Amsterdam out to Bandung so that they could avoid being taken over by the Nazis. But then the Japanese came. It's like they weren't going to get a fair break.
0: Uh, Some of the diamonds were small, others were large, including some large specimen stones of more than seven carats, which had been destined for the Sultan of Delhi in India.
3: But the important thing is no-one on the plane knew what was in the packet.
0: Smirnoff wasn't told of its contents. His attention was basically let's get to Australia before the Japanese overrun this airport.
2: There was a chance to get away and a lull in the firing. One o'clock in the morning, they then depart Bandung, trying to get to Broome. So the pilot of the plane was Ivan Smirnov.
0: Smirnov, it's one of those Hollywood stories
3: you know, startlingly handsome.
2: Apparently a very fun man to be around. He had a reputation as a ladies' man.
3: His nickname was the Turk. And Turk in those days was just a throwaway line. It was a bit like saying he was a playboy.
0: Smirnov was born on the 30th of January 1895 to a very poor peasant family in a town called Vladimir, 200 kilometres to the east of Moscow.
2: He enlisted for World War I, and he says they were really just fodder for the guns. He was recruited into a squadron of 90, and after this first combat, casualties had just wrecked this squadron. It went from 90 to 19. And by the end of the year, Smirnov was the only person still alive from those original 90 who had been recruited.
0: He got wounded in the leg by machine gun fire in early December of 1914 and was medically evacuated to Petrograd. He had a five-month convalescent period and probably thought, I don't want to be the poor bloody infantry anymore, how about aviation?
3: (laughs) His nurse was the niece of the general in charge of the aircraft. And so he, of course, uh, seduced her, and as a result of that, he got into the training program.
2: Um, But he became very famous. He was sort of a Red Baron-style ace fighter pilot.
3: He
0: was flying the contemporary aircraft of the day, so that's your biplanes, for the Imperial Russian Air Force against the German Air Force. He was Russia's fourth highest air ace, credited with shooting down 11 aircraft.
2: But then in Russia you had the revolution and the Bolsheviks were not very fond of officers. And he and some others became concerned that they would become a target, that they would be punished or even killed. So he escaped Russia to Europe, ended up in England, and from there ended up in the Netherlands and flying for KLM.
3: So he was flying a Fokker 3, and he was flying it from Amsterdam to Croydon in England and the engine ceased and he had three passengers on board and he thought oh well I'm gonna to have to ditch this in the Straits of Dover it was so he came down but this is just the most incredible thing because the tide had drained out so much that a whole string of sandbars appeared up the Straits of Dover and they were said to belong to the Earl of Goodwins who, who was just nearby in Kent and so they were the Goodwin Sands and so Turk glided down and he landed on one of these sandbars. Now, there was a freighter and it saw this and for their eye, from their perspective, they couldn't see the sandbars and they thought the Turk had landed on the water. And one sailor turned to another sailor and said, Christ could only walk on water. <laughs> this guy can land planes on it. And, uh, that ship rescued them and got them out. But when he got back to London, the the international press went crazy with it. And he was called the Earl of the Goodwins. And uh, his name and fame just went throughout the whole of the world, especially the aviation world.
2: And he was breaking records and finding new routes. He pioneered an 11-day postal route between Amsterdam and Batavia.
0: And when he arrived back at Schiphol Airport, there were 22,000 people out there to meet him to recognize his record run. And shortly after, Queen Wilhelmina made him a knight in the order of Orange Nassau. So he was Ivan Smirnoff.
2: He would say no woman would ever own him because he had to be free.
0: But he ran into a Danish actress.
2: Margot Linien.
0: She basically um, tamed the Turk.
2: One of the stories I love is that he told her, I'm going to get married. And she went, Great, anyone I know? And um, that was the marriage proposal that she then accepted. He married her in Copenhagen and and then dragged her all around the world.
0: And then he continues to fly the Amsterdam Batavia, Batavia Amsterdam run for KLM. And then just prior to the occupation of the Netherlands in 1940, basically KLM permanently posted most of the aircraft and most of their crews out to the Dutch East Indies, and he was part of that.
2: As they were flying, what they didn't know was that Broome Airfield had been attacked by a squadron of Japanese fighters.
0: So the Japanese Third Air Group, their specialisation was long-range raids.
3: And they had this magnificent new fighter called the Zero. And they put drop tanks on them and away they went and they flew all the way from Timor to Broome, dropped the drop tanks and raided. In Roebuck Bay, they sunk 15 flying boats and then they went up the airfield and destroyed seven aircraft.
0: There were lots and lots of casualties it's around about the 120 mark.
3: And they always kept a couple of zeroes with ammunition in case they got attacked while they were going back. And so as they're flying back, they're just north of Brune. Meanwhile, Turk is coming in. He's been delayed by the, having to wait for the package. He thinks he's out of danger now because it's daylight and he sees they're a long way away.
2: But the Japanese fighters, one of them saw the DC-3. Now, the DC-3 has no defensive capabilities. Three of them broke off to attack this DC-3, and there's no chance.
0: They let go with machine gun bullets and cannon fire.
3: So Turk, apparently, according to his radio operator, had been practicing all the aerobatic capability of the DC-3.
2: Once they started shooting the plane, Smirnov put it into a steep spiral dive.
0: He jinked, he did all sorts of evasive action.
2: It wasn't quickly enough, Smirnov had taken bullets to his arms and to his hip, he's bleeding, he's not well, the engine is on fire and some of the passengers he can hear have also taken damage.
3: And the port engine catches on fire and as you know the fuel tanks for a DC-3 are in the wings, so once the engine's on fire you've got big troubles.
2: Afterwards, when they looked at the plane, they found that there were some 300 bullet holes in the plane. But he did manage to get into this dive, get out of their firing line, and then he's looking around and he sees a bit of beach where he reckons he can get this DC-3
3: down. He's coming over pink rocky outcrops on the Kimberley Coast and all of a sudden this beautiful long beach opens in front of him and it's got dark sand where the tide's gone out enough that he can land on the firm sand.
0: He landed it on a beach at Carnot Bay, about 90 close to the north of Broome.
3: And he gets it down, but then he skews round and the plane goes face first into the surf and a wave washes over the engine and puts the fire out. I mean, this is the Earl of the Goodwins, this is Turk.
2: One of the passengers was a flight instructor and he said it was the most amazing flying that anyone had ever seen. He could not believe that Smirnov had managed to outfly three Japanese Zeros in a DC-3.
3: When they crash-landed, they had to get out and under the plane because the uh, Japanese kept strafing. So
0: Smirnoff ordered everyone to make a run for it in between the strafing runs.
3: Jupe Blau, the young man, the mechanic, tried to help the lady and the little boy off. And in doing that, he mistimed his own getting under the the plane. Blau,
0: the mechanic, wasn't that uh, fortunate and he was shot through the legs. After a, a while, the Zero Fighters had to break off their engagement and continue back to their base in Timor. at sort of intervals, the four people who were mortally injured died.
3: There was Blau, there was uh, Maria, there was Johan, and there was Stan Hendricks.
0: And they were buried in shallow graves on the beach.
3: Turk was pretty badly wounded, but he said, <laughs> I think it'll be all right, the blood's drying up now, so I'm not gonna to bleed to death.
0: They realised that they didn't have much in the way of food, but more importantly, water. So they got aboard the plane, found some items that they could make sort of a desalination still out of, producing just enough water to keep them alive. They managed to get shellfish from the rock pools on the low tide, and then they grabbed the three parachutes that they had for the entire people in the aircraft and rigged them up as shade because March in the Kimberley is very, very humid, very, very hot, very still and very nasty if you're not in shade. Then they tried to get the radio going. So they got that off the aircraft and tried to get an SOS out. And the next day, the SOS had been picked up. But unfortunately, by the Japanese, there was a big Japanese flying boat who found the wrecked DC-3 and dropped two bombs, and then later returned and dropped another two bombs. Fortunately, the bombs didn't cause any damage or injuries, but some of them didn't go off, so that just sort of led unexploded ordnance all around them, which just added to the very tricky situation.
2: So the package was sort of the least of Smirnoff's worries at that time. I think that's understandable, and he's trying to get everybody out and safe.
3: Turk got Van Romont, the young Calum technician, and he said, look, we're not going to get out of here if I don't have my maps and papers and stuff, so would you mind going back onto the plane and getting it, because I'm too injured, I can't do it myself.
2: He sends him back and says, look, you need to get the paperwork for the plane, the logbook and this package.
3: away he went, he got the stuff, and he took the package out of the, the safe, he got to the door and he had to get down into waist-deep water. And just as he did that, a wave came in and bumped the plane. It went over Turk's head, because Turk was coming out to try to help him, and it went over Turk's head.
2: Falls into the water, drops everything, picks it all back up, but doesn't pick up the package, can't find the package.
3: Of course, they search for it, they search for it in the plane, and they searched for it along the beach and they couldn't find it.
2: Smirnoff said, well, it could have landed in the plane, it could have landed on the surf, I really don't know. I don't know where it ended up.
0: They were saved after six days on the beach. There was an Aboriginal man called Bernard George who was walking from Broome to Lombardina mission via the coastal track, fishing and shelling on the way. And he saw shiny planes trying to shoot down a camouflage plane, which would match because the DC-3 was in camouflage colours by then. And George arrived at Beagle Bay Mission on the 5th
3: Straight away, they raised a rescue party, and off they went to find this plane. They didn't know where it was. They knew roughly where it was.
0: It took them two days to get them out because they were very weak. And then at Beagle Bay, they stayed for two days, slept, were fed, given new clothes. And then about a week after they were shot down, they travelled into Broome. The best description I found to describe Jack Palmer was larrikin beachcomber.
2: This guy, he's in his 40s. He's pretty good looking. He's got a lugger, but he's not really doing any pearling. And so he's certainly, he's looking for salvage. And he comes across the wreckage.
0: He had an old lugger called Uraeus, which is the god of the east wind in mythology. So it reflects him well, he came from the east.
3: (laughs) I just showed you his test certificate. According to that, Jack was born in Wollongong but there's no date of birth given. So I think he was one of the many eastern state guys that moved to the west, but when they moved to the west they changed their name. He must have changed identity and called himself Jack Palmer.
0: People in Broome didn't ask too many questions in those days in case you had a colourful past.
3: He was a pretty sexually driven man and and I mean he he breached section 46 of the Natives Protection Act many times. He used prostitutes, but he quite liked Aboriginal women and and, and Jack was a bit of a scoundrel over there. These days we call him a root rat and that's what he was like. And it was ideal for him up there because there's stacks of beaches, no one around.
0: He wasn't a hermit, he liked the company of people and was described as a tan man with a bushy moustache and the laconic smile of someone who enjoyed life.
3: He took his lugger from Broome to the beach north of Carnot Bay and it was late in the afternoon and he, he took a dinghy across and he went on board the plane and he noticed that there was a fair bit of sand under this spare petrol tank in the, in the cabin and being a beach calmer, of course, he, he scraped away at the, at the sand and he found in it the package.
2: And he picks it up and some diamonds fall out. And he's like, whoa, this is interesting. And he says, I don't know how many diamonds fell out, but there were some in the packet. And so I took them, because if I had left them there, the next tide was going to come in and wash these away. So I was doing the sensible thing, which was rescuing the diamonds.
0: It seems that he showed his female crew some of the diamonds, telling him, I need not work now, I can just sit down and smoke and he may have given his female crew some diamonds then or later. He then sailed his lugger north to Pender Bay and found his mates, James Mulgrew and Frank Robinson, at Anchorage in the bay with their lugger. And he couldn't help himself, so he showed his find to them. And in the course of the conversation, he gave them some diamonds.
2: He went to Broome, he enlisted into the military at that point and he went to the military commandant, Major Cliff Gibson. Gibson says the man walked in this beachcomber in a vest.
0: And he said, look what I've got. So he opened a salt shaker.
2: And throws the diamonds onto the desk and just scatters them and Gibson's words were, like a player throwing dice.
3: There was about 6% of all the diamonds was in it.
2: He didn't turn in anything like as many diamonds as had been shipped.
0: Gibson immediately signed him on to the army and sent him to Ganthian Point for coastwatch duties so he could keep an eye on him. <laughs> and then in the meantime, little quantities of diamonds turned up around town and the peninsula communities. Sometimes they were being used as playthings by children or barter items. Some were handed over to the authorities by various people on the peninsula and some even turned up in a glove box of a truck being cleaned by its owner after a trip to Beagle Bay and some were even found in a matchbox left in a train carriage in Perth.
2: The story goes that he was around a broom, he was handing out diamonds as favours to some of the Indigenous Australians who were there working. He bought tobacco for one cigarette by trading a diamond for it.
0: Detective Sergeant Blott, who was the investigating officer, in March of the next year, 1943 arrested a Chinese tailor, Chin Lung Depp, as he came off the plane in Perth, and he was found to have 460 diamonds. Depp admitted in court that he had obtained the gems for an Aboriginal. Then after that, Jack Palmer, James Mulgrew and James Robson were arrested and charged with the theft of diamonds.
2: Palmer then admitted that is 66, he's a shop assistant, he really needs help, and Robinson's crippled, and I was just trying to help them out. So I gave them a couple of diamonds, I filled the salt shakers, and there were some small ones, dusters, he called them, that didn't fit into the salt shakers, so I told them they could keep those. But he says he only ever found really that amount. And there was a couple that he gave to the two guys and maybe the rest of them were spilt on the beach or maybe they had been broken into earlier, but he did not have these additional diamonds. As long
3: as he didn't say anything about having more diamonds and just kept saying that was all I had, they could only charge him with the ones he handed in. They couldn't charge him with ones that hadn't been handed in.
2: And the jury acquitted all three men after just 30 minutes' deliberation. And they agree that there was no trial, at which point Jack says, OK, so um, what about the reward? Keith, through his lawyers, went to the Dutch authorities to say, I salvaged and returned all these diamonds, and is there a reward? And the Dutch authorities went, yeah, no, really not.
0: Well, he continued his coast-watching duties till the war with Japan ended.
3: He always said he loved to sit down and smoke, put his feet up for the rest of his life. His visits to the brothels were frequent.
0: He bought a house in Broome and a big blue Chevrolet in the 1950s, but he never revealed where he got the money.
3: He bought a boat, he set up a business, worked for a little while on the wharf and one day the pay didn't arrive for all the workers.
0: And he just took out a roll of notes and paid the lot.
2: The diamonds that he handed in were worth about 20,000 Australian pounds. And there were some 300,000 Australian pounds worth of diamonds that had been sent.
3: Right, Okay. So what happened to all the diamonds?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. When Jack was in his last days, Father McKelson, who was the priest down at La Grange but was also in Broome, visited Jack in the Broome Hospital and asked him what he'd really done with the rest of the diamonds and Palmer apparently smiled broadly and said that he'd handed them all over to the authorities. The person who recorded that anecdote said both men knew that that was not right.
2: <laughs> Jack Palmer died in 1958 at Broome Pioneer Cemetery. There's a headstone that just says, Diamond Jack Palmer died September 1st, 1958,
0: RIP. And there were some other stories going around town, like uh, after the war diamonds were found in a small package in a fork of a tree there was another one that a handyman arrived to do some work at one place in broome for a very low price when they left there with the handyman still working on the job when they came back there was a hole in the fireplace and the handyman was nowhere to be seen so they reckoned there was a parcel of diamonds there and then uh, there was a prominent lady of the town miss daniels told the story that she'd interrupted a man who was behaving suspiciously at the wooden steps of a back door, and after he'd gone, the lady ripped the steps out and found a few diamonds in a hole under the steps.
3: In the end, the Dutch got back seven percent of them, but Palmer probably fenced his with Uncle Snide, this is a Snide pearl dealer, and so he would have made sure they were distributed like the pearls used to be, he used diamonds instead and all the American servicemen in Perth were the target and they would have got rid of them early and turned it into cash. Where the diamonds are today is on the fingers, the wrists, the necks of the granddaughters of all the American servicemen that were in Perth at that time, and there were a lot of them.
2: But I know lots of people have gone back to that beach at Carno Bay, it's now called Smirnoff Beach. And that's been really common for people to go there, searching, hoping to find just one diamond, maybe two.
1: And that was Diamond Jack, Smirnoff and the Pelican. Our narrators were Sylvia Ridley, Michael Lake and John Thompson Gray. Sound engineering and original music by Tom Henry and the program was produced by Michael Ad. I'm Kirsty Melville and I hope to catch you again soon for more audio adventures on The History Listen. See you then.